long, long time ago. I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And if I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver with every paper I deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride. But something touched me deep inside the day the music died. So bye, bye, <laughs> Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, this will be the day that I die. <laughs> All right, Pat, thank you, man. <laughs> yeah, we had to get to the chorus on that one, man. That's a classic. It's a classic everyone, track. Yeah, everyone get in. Welcome, man. Welcome well, to many, the construction. Thank you. thank you so much. I know Pleasure. that uh, I've actually been looking for. I was telling Angelina that we just when we were coming here, I was like, I'm looking forward to this show because cool. it's uh, it's going to be a very interesting conversation. I think. I hope so. It's going to be very, very good. So, Pat, Patrick, Pat, Moore. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you're a site superintendent. Yes. But you're also side gig hustle. You're an instructor. That's right. Now, a specific kind of instructor. Yep. The official mm -hmm. title is what? What is the teacher? Issue? I don't know. You're just an instructor. So well, what I instruct is very unique, but I'm just an instructor. Well, I think it's more than just an instructor, right? Because <laughs> this is, uh, first of all, I don't know much about this side of the industry. I'm yep. fascinated by it that whoever has the ability to gain these skills, mm -hmm. uh, lots of respect for them. And I know that I met you through Frederick, who was yep. on the show shout last out to year. Fred. Huge shout out to him because yep. he's you. the one that spoke highly about you. And mm. also he's a student of yours as well. He is now. That's right. Which is amazing. It's so, awesome. Yeah. And, and he's a young kid who's yeah. craving, always wanting to learn more. Yeah. Uh, but I know that uh, off mic before we got started, you were giving me the background history on the word stereotomy, right? Like yep. where it all comes from. You mm -hmm. want to share that with everybody right now? Sure, yeah. The yeah. etymology of the word, so stereotomy, uh, is Greek. So let's break it down. There's two kind of parts, stereo and then to me. Stereo is uh, 3D space, volume. So if we think of uh, stereo as like music, it's where you could record from two different locations in the same room to to get the stereo of that sound. Um, and then the to me is to cut. So it's cutting three-dimensional solids like stone or wood into particular shapes or forms. So right now, these days, it's it's anything that you can cut or shape yeah. in any material. Because you've seen people, I guess, cut, shape, work with foams, plastics. Yeah. But it all started with wood and stone, right? Well, and... Maybe some sheet goods, yes. like steel or you know lead or something like that. But yeah, gen I think like way back in the day, it would have been stone and uh, wood, like timber, and then uh, joiners as well. Uh, you know, doing interior finishing. So if they have like uh, some wood paneling and then a let's say like a dome or something or yeah. like a curved uh, doorway, old school like plasters and things like that. Yeah, yeah, they would be using that sort of knowledge. 
All right, this, this is going to be a good chat. I totally am digging it. So a quick shout out to the boys out west, Builders and Brews. They're doing the great things where they get together and they have a bunch of contractors, tradespeople uh, show up at a bar, whatever, and great. they just basically have construction conversations. That's all it nice. is. So the boys, thanks so much for the tea that you guys sent out. Yeah. Uh, I want to give out your deets as well. So www.historicalcarpentry.com, which is the website, but you really don't focus on that. You focus more on social media, yeah. on Facebook and IG, School of Stereotomy, and then IG is also the stereot. Sorry. Stereotomist. Stereotomist. <laughs> yeah. That's it. So everyone's going to like get a lesson here on that word particularly. But um, where do we want to begin this conversation, Pat? Well, and I mean, Why did you get into it? Why did you particularly, you're a well, site super, but. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that I chose to get into. I didn't know this existed until I moved to France and was living in France and doing uh, this very uh, intense, what, what Fred did similarly. You know, yeah. He was there for a brief amount of time, but I was there for several years and I did this whole tr very traditional uh, apprenticeship program that they have that has been in existence uh, since the 13th century. So it's been around for a long, long time. And, and the it's still, techniques are still used to today. Yeah, totally, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, it's, it's been around since, uh, um, you know, medieval times. And that's what we, you know, when we romanticize about the medieval ages and in construction, specifically like cathedrals and stuff, this is the knowledge and this is the group of people that made that happen. Is it a dying art? Because I consider it more of an art than a skill, right? Am I wrong to say that? Or are we saying it's, a, it's well, two sides of the same coin? They go, yeah, exactly. Two sides of the same coin. So okay. it's still, it's a skill and it can be used and can become artful. So, of course, I think like a lot of skills in the beginning, it's kind of utilitarian and practical. But if you keep going down that road, you eventually get to a point where it's artistic, you know, because you're pretty good at it. And it's beyond the, the practical purposes. So you start building little models and, uh, you know, little pieces that look like art pieces. I mean, still to this day, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation I had with Fred. I personally can't wrap my head around. I know that he tried to explain, and you're mm -hmm. going to do the same thing here. Yeah. <laughs> how to visualize something in a 3D component mm -hmm. and how to cut it in that visualization. Mm -hmm. That's challenging, and I and, and a lot of respect to all the kids that are either or even older, probably older tradespeople that are getting into it, yep. that are actually embracing it, oh, yeah, totally. learning it, mm -hmm. and understanding it. But mm -hmm. I guess if I I gave myself the time, yeah, to actually understand it, then I eventually will see what you guys see mm -hmm. for sure. Like anything, practice, it's all you know, it is. get good at it. But the yeah, I mean, in France, they start this thing off when they're really young, you know, fourteen years old, and they have a decade of worth of education that they have to go through um, and they have to prove themselves at certain points um, and they use this knowledge to, to, to do that. And here in, you know, in America, uh, it, this is something that we never really, uh, like we had it and it's still around a little bit, but it's something that for a lot of reasons, you know, the industrial revolution and, you know, framing and uh, productivity, um, doesn't really value it. Yeah. I get, outside of France, who else is doing it? There's uh, ultimately there's three main cultures and countries that still practice it and maintain it and use it, uh, let's say daily. And that's the French, the Germans, and the Japanese. But that's not to say that other countries don't use it. Like the, the Swiss use it, uh, the Koreans use it, but mainly it's the French, Germans, and the Japanese. 
And in fact, they have uh, words specific for stereotomy as it's used by carpenters. So in France, it's this word called l'art du trait. Okay. It's the art of trait. Uh, it, it, those things get lost in translation. Uh, and then the Germans, they have a word called shiften. Uh, and then the Japanese, it's kikujutsu. Kikujutsu. Yeah, kikujutsu. And they, this is the knowledge that they practice when they're young um, that enables them to maintain and uh, restore uh, their cultural architectural identity. You know, so for example, if you want to, uh, like in the Japanese context, if they're restoring this ancient pagoda with these big massive overhangs, you know, that we quite often recognize as Japanese architecture, it's, it's the knowledge of kikujutsu that enables them to lay out and cut these swooping eaves lines, you know, the, mm -hmm. uh, where they have these curved purlins and fascias and, and other, you know, hip members. And also the, the complex or seemingly complex bracketing system that, that supports this large overhang. Yeah. All of that stuff is used using this drawing technique of stereotomy or kikujutsu. It's almost as if you look at it for the first time and at a, it's a glance, you look at it, you think that that tree was made that way. Yeah, in some ways they would use the wood fibers of the curved yeah, part. Yeah, but mm -hmm. it's not. It's it's all that skill and that art. It's, mm -hmm. That's how it's the connecting point where it's like I'm still trying to figure out how to get to that <laughs> point. Yeah, yeah. But sure. I, I And I guess my, my real question is why can't Canada be one of those three and be a fourth? Why can't we start – do we – do we have the population here? Are there the tradespeople in this industry that want to continue it here? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, 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 for sure. But I mean, in America, I mean, just people. People in general, yeah, for sure. Uh, we're all humans. Um, there's nothing special about the Japanese, Germans, or the French. It's just they have this knowledge that we didn't really value or, you know, have the need for it. But I think as time goes on, people start recognizing or people are recognizing the value of it. So I, yeah, I totally think that there's carpenters out here in Canada specifically that would, would, would you know, they would uh, take the time and, and spend, you know, their, their money and, um, and to learn something because it's, you know, this is especially this, this isn't, it's not a, a weekend course or like a product you buy at, you know, you just do buy this thing and you apply it. It's, it's not like that technology that we often associate with problem solving. Like, oh, you got a problem, apply this technology and you're this ist and it solves it for you. Yep. It's a skill that takes a long time to get good at. But it's a very, very valuable skill that, you know, if you get good at it or, you, you know, let's say master it or something like that, you are like a walking human AutoCAD or SketchUp. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, and then with very basic primitive tools, you could lay out and solve any complexity, like any intersection or any 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 object or any design that you have in your mind. It's um, you know the ultimate. Um, how can I say this? The ultimate uh, uh, thing that's holding you back when you get good at this is it's kind of weird to say would be your own imagination. It's not the technology. It's not like, okay. So for example, I often give this is uh, in carpentry. When you go to school and you, and you start learning about carpentry and roof framing the, or stair building, it's they'll apply a, this tool, the, the framing square. Yeah. 
and it's very common. It's all good. It is, there's, it's, it's wonderful. It's an amazing tool, actually. It's, it's, it's quite versatile. But you, become, you can become dependent upon it. That, okay, if I have a hip or a valley or staircases or whatever, I have to apply this tool to it. And, and that's the limiting factor. Is okay, if I want something outside of that, well, if I can't use my framing square, then, I, then it's no good. Yeah. Whereas with this, this is far beyond any tool or technology. It's your own... Uh, mind by drawing it out <laughs> so you guys have two battles here right because you've got the evolution of just construction in general mm -hmm. how we basically have created such a mass production of construction that this is your trade this is your scope so when you're a framer or whatever you're dealing with wood that this is what your capability is mm -hmm. specialty specialty yeah but then you've got the skill set in the art that takes a lot longer to learn but then the market's not really willing to pay for that skill and art, right? Well, uh, I would say yes, they would. I mean, I think like any good skilled person, you're valuable. Of course. And so if you have that skill, people are willing to pay for it. And it's not, it's not one of those things where it's like, I, I can just take that technology and apply it to this problem. It's not, it's not like that. It's okay. It's it's across the spectrum of skills where okay, I can I can apply that knowledge when I'm doing roof framing, or I can apply that knowledge when I want to design something, or um, I'm building a deck, or it's it's uh, it's not just one fixed thing. So it's valuable across the board uh, in your skill set, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense to me. And now that I've got you here in the studio, I wanted to ask you. Cause I've had something in my head and I have no idea how to build it, but it was always kind of, it, it came from the idea of taking an umbrella, mm -hmm. you know, the way that you see the, the brackets underneath an umbrella canopy, right? Yeah. Taking one quarter of that and making that some sort of a structural canopy member. Sure. Mm -hmm. You guys would know how to do that. I would have no idea how to do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. But how would one start to take that element and try to figure out how do I do that? How do I take timber mm -hmm. and create one quarter of an umbrella canopy in that same roundness on top, but angular underneath? Right. Well, I mean, if I was to walk you through it, like a step by step, I mean, you would have to first kind of get your design nailed down either by hand sketching it or something like that and then when you're fairly when you got the design down to like 90 percent or 95 percent okay this is what i want um then you go to the drawing board literally where we will take a table this size or larger the concrete floor often in the shop and start laying this out full size or full scale on the floor and start drawing it out out piece by piece and so you you first just flat yeah just, just flat it's a two-dimensional perspective yeah so you have like a plan view elevation views side views uh you know all these different views and it's by doing and that's what the stereotomy is is um, i'm taking this object so in this case this umbrella and i'm slicing it in multiple ways or i'm i'm viewing it from all these different angles so top view like a bird's eye view side view i'm looking at it let's say from perpendicular from the the the, the, the angle of the umbrella itself so i can see this this, like like I would have to sheathe it or something. And by doing all of these different views, I can get information from, from each one of them to then be able to lay out my timber that will enable that, you know, the, let's say 
give me a curve or give me some, you know, a, a real length, a real angle. Um, so so it, from there you start becoming three-dimensional. You start... Yeah. Well, the drawing itself, it didn't, like it's 2D, but it represents a three-dimensional object. So, for example, like your plan view, you'll have, you know, left and right, back and forth measurements. Yeah. yeah. And then on your elevation view, you'll have a height measurement. So it's a combination of using those two pieces, those those two views that can give you, let's say, an angular piece that's coming up on an angle, like a rafter. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. And then there's also techniques on how you can choose how that those rafters or those pieces of yeah. timber are going to intersect with For each sure. other. For sure. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So when you're doing that process, you start drawing, you just draw as much as you know. You know, what's the size of this thing? What's the plan view of this thing? What's the elevation view? Um, drawing at full scale. Full scale. Yeah. And you can, well, you know, and we also draw it scaled down. We can make little models, but the scale down uh, drawings, you can, the only thing that changes when you scale something down is the length. The angles yeah. still stay the same. So let's say historically, or even today, you can just grab the length off of your scale down drawing and then just times it by whatever the scale is. Yeah. So historically, they would take a pair of dividers and just grab that length and step it off whatever the scale was. And that gives you your, your real length, but then the angle doesn't change. So you just still grab your angle off of your drawing yeah. and you don't know it mathematically like, or using trig, you don't, you don't know what the, the numerical value of that angle is or that length, but you see it as a visual rep representation. Like there's the line length that, that the length of that line is, is the actual length of the piece. Now I'm beginning to see it. Yeah. I so that's why drawing it out is, is so vital because you don't, it's, it's visual. You see it, it's right there. And that's what's so powerful for uh, tradespeople. Because tradespeople, for the most part, are hands-on visual learners. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is no better way to learn something than to draw it out full size. And you can say, well, see, like, this is what it looks like. There is your actual length. There is your actual angle. It's not, it's not witchcraft, you know, whereas um, we often get taught using math, you know, trig. And for, like, I'm, maybe I'm speaking more for myself, but I know a lot of people, too, math isn't their strong point. And that's often why we get into the trades. You know, we're not, let's say, academically... Uh, smart in that sense, but we're smart in other ways. Uh, but we don't have a strong, that part of our brain isn't the strongest part is using the math. So it's kind of in one way, it's like, well, why would you take these people who aren't strong in that skill and, and hammer this skill into them? Whereas there's other methods like this drawing technique that are far more empowering. And it's in fact, it's, uh, it's far more empowering to tradespeople than the math is because when you start, especially when you start getting into curves, like, you know, single curves or double curves, um, compound curves, stuff like that, you could still draw it out and solve it and, and lay out and cut your pieces. Whereas mathematically, if I was to sit there with a calculator, well, I, I wouldn't be able to do it, but you, I, you'd have to be like a genius, I think, to solve the numbers that are associated the numbers associated. With yeah. And the, and the but an actual drawing actually it's right there. Right it's, in front exactly. Mm-hmm. So I guess the unfortunate thing is I want to ask you, why did you get into instructing it? But the majority of trade schools don't even teach this. Well, they don't even know it exists, probably. Yeah. So uh, I will, you know, after having my experience in France, learning all about this and, you know, doing this masterpiece and all this stuff, it's just in, in, in Europe, so France and Germany, it's just part of their apprenticeship. They just yeah. learn this stuff since the get-go. So there's nothing... There's nothing really special about it for them. And I got a couple of stories about that. But when I keep coming, when I learned about that and then coming back to Canada and, you know, to the U.S. for that matter, um, 
I was just kind of blown away that there's this whole like sea of knowledge that exists that we have no clue is, such is a out tool, there. Eh? Like it's such a tool that's it's not a, being used. It's huge. It's massive. It's actually, I mean, it's so important. Like I say, I, I repeat this like to nauseum, but it's so important that UNESCO lists it. UNESCO, uh, the UNESCO is an abbreviation for the United Nations Education Scientific Cultural Organization, has listed this knowledge uh, for onto this list of intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Because it's, this is the knowledge that has enabled human civilizations to build the cathedrals and the, and the churches and the, fort and the fortresses, people, yeah, like yeah. military applications. For and in fact, uh, in you know whatever 1799, it was a tr it was a military secret in France up until 1799. Wow, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, Gaspard Monge, who was this mathematician in France, uh, you know, the, the the supposed father of descriptive geometry, would teach this stuff in uh, in the military to, to like military architects and engineers. Uh, the for the way to solve or or design uh, star forts. And bridges and walls and stuff like that. So the stonework involved to with be it. indestructible, to last long, uh, last long, or just is well more like well, so. So star forts, it's it's the way that this this the fort is designed. You know, like you have these angular points at the forts, and it's the 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 way to defend those walls with other angular walls with cannon fire. So so the the way that star forts. I mean, from what I understand, the way that star forts work is, let's say, uh, way back in the day. Uh, when there was a fort, let's say a castle with a straight wall, soldiers would just rush the wall and try to get as close to the wall as possible because the cannon fire or, you know, archers can't really get to them because they're too close. And they yeah. would put up their ladders and then, and then that's how they would, you know, get the siege, take over, take, the, take yeah. over the fort. Whereas when star forts started to be developed, it was kind of like the modern day arms race is how can we make these, these, these walls pointy and then have other supporting walls behind that that are also pointy, but that offers cannon fire or support along this length of the wall. So when soldiers can rush the wall, they would they would still be able to fire at them. Yeah, yeah. And so it's all these this all the way the angles work out, and you know the sloping of the hills and stuff like that. That and so with Gaspard Munch, he would design these forts to to incorporate that design feature, and then they would use this stereotomy or what he would what some people call descriptive geometry to solve for how do we actually build it with the stone or timbers or whatever. And today's climate outside of those three areas there, who's using it? Like who's building today with some of these techniques going on? Well, uh, we, essentially we all do. Everyone does it without them knowing that, that this is what they're doing. Okay. Yeah. So let's say, you know, like timber in the timber framing industry, we have mortise and tenon joinery and yeah. stuff like that. So there's elements of laying out your timber, this three-dimensional piece of wood. Um, and how can I cut this piece? So another piece can join it and it's connected. So it's not, it may not be in the kind of traditional sense of I'm making a drawing and I'm going to lay timbers on it and then, and then transfer that information onto my timber, but you still have the notions of it, of, um, I have this three-dimensional piece. I have this three-dimensional piece. How can I put these two together? How do they interact? Uh, so that's the kind of the basics of it. But, uh, but but people in the industry do this all the time. They do it all the time, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah like, so, for example, like stair builders. Stair builders use it without them knowing that it's stereotomy. They'll, uh, let's say, when you want to build a quarter-turn staircase in a residential house. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will draw the stringer on the wall of 
yeah. the house. Yeah. And then that gives them all the layout for the treads, the risers and all that stuff. That's essentially stereotomy. You're, you're, you're drawing out this two-dimensional representation of the stringer or the treads or this three-dimensional piece of, or the staircase. So they do it. Like, but then all of a sudden you start adding the element of a, either a curved one side yeah. railing or sure. whatever. It's a hockey stick or whatever. Right. Uh, you got pies or whatever. Yeah. It's just like you start adding all these different elements. Exactly. Yeah. So then you can do, a, let's say, a plan view. And then you can get your pie-shaped winders, you know, off your plan view. Now, here in Canada, though, you get a lot of stair builders that are actually making this in the workshop, assembling it, gluing it, clamping it, putting it all together, mm -hmm. and then delivering that a full stair as a unit and mm -hmm. then installing it on the job site. I know that in America, a lot of Americans, tradespeople, stair people, they actually build it on site and then do all that work, clamping and turning and gluing and all this other stuff. So there is that little bit of a disconnect between how Canadians do stairs and versus Americans do stairs. I don't uh, know. Slightly different. I mean, because I've always shown these units arrive on site and Americans are always asking me, well, why, are you, why not build it on site there? Right. Right. Or take out or build on top of your construction stairs, mm -hmm. a new stair, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, or spent, why do you spend so much time and effort? I've always done this. I, I've mm -hmm. always spent my time and effort to build proper construction stairs. I just don't need stairs being built out of two by sixes or two by eights and just like right. slap them all with cleats on top. I'm right. like, I'd like to actually have a stair. But then you get rid of that. And a lot of people are like, why are you getting rid of that? It's such a nice stair. Mm. I go, well, it served its purpose at yeah. that time. Yeah, it's construction stairs. So there's, there's two ways of, I guess, looking at it that way, right? Well, I mean, there's a lot of companies in the U.S. that will... They'll do units as well, too. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. But I see that a lot of people are, they prefer it on site. I think that's a kind of an old school mentality. Yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah. for sure. That's yeah. where you bring uh, that tradition back, yeah. right? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, building things on site is in some, in some context is a lot slower. You know, if you have a shop that's heated and you got all the tools around you, you got, it's far more, you know, controlled environment and the quality is a lot better. It's just you have far more control over it than building something uh, out of the back of your truck. So how is this shift from you being a student to you being the teacher? Well, how, how did that become a thing for you? Well, like when I came back from France, I, ha I had this experience and I, and I gained this knowledge that I wanted to show people that he, you got to like check this stuff out, man, because it's, it's quite profound. And nobody was interested nobody was like, everyone's like, yeah, that's no, no, no. Like, Welcome to construction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I contacted hundreds, like I literally at one point I sent out over 300 emails to, to schools across. And it was just crickets. Uh, nobody. And actually I would all, and I'd follow up, I'd follow up with phone calls, you know, to not try to talk to the Dean or talk to, you know, whoever the, the, you know, the program coordinator or whatever, or the person, the teacher themselves and they're just like, nah, nah, like, I've never heard of this. I've been doing this for 30 years and I never heard of it. How do I, how can it possibly <laughs> that exist? That statement's never said in construction. Yeah, for, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's probably just me butting my head against the wall and not going anywhere and saying, okay, look, like there's something to this. If the UN is saying that this is important and you have these other cultures that this is, this is what they do. Um, so like a, a bit of a tangent here, but when I was living in France and learning the basics of this sort of drawing technique, there was this 14-year-old this kid. I was living this with, with one of these 14-year-old kids. And he said, hey, man, you want to, like in French, of course, hey, you, uh, you want to learn some timber framing? And I was a, a decade older than him. I was 24. And I was like, what the fuck? I mean, I'll <laughs> learn timber framing, you know? Like, I'll teach you timber framing. Like, this is my ego speaking, right? Yeah. And, uh, he, uh, and I said, sure, okay. 
uh, and in five minutes, he did this little drawing with a bunch of these little triangles. And he goes, yeah, so you see here, like that's, that's your hip elevation view. And on that view, you can see the, the, the real length and you have your plumb angle, you got your level angle, you got your cheek cut. And I was like, whoa, in five minutes, this guy did this thing and he's 14. Uh, okay, well, maybe, maybe I got something to learn, you know? Okay, I'll shut up and I'll listen, you know? Um, and uh, so to come back to, to having these experiences and coming back to the Canada and then now butting my head against these people uh, who don't want anything to do with it, have never heard of it. They often say when you, when you hear that word stereotomy, they think stereo or like some kind of music system or something. Um, I thought, okay, like I got to do something with this. I, 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 because I know it's profound. Yeah. I know for a fact it's profound. And how do I know this? Based on the, all the historical stuff that occurs in Europe and in Japan and the, Asi in the Asiatic countries. Like how, that's how they did all that stuff. So there's something there. Um, and I just continued. I just continued emailing. And then eventually I'm like, okay, well, screw it. I'm just going to start teaching courses. I'm just going to start, I'm going to open up my own little school, my tiny, tiny little school. And I'm going to start just putting out the word out there on social media uh, that I can offer this course. And yeah, you know, little by little, it was tiny. You get one guy, one person came in and go, this is cool. Okay, I'm not sure how I can use it, but okay. And then as the years go on, it starts growing and growing and growing and it slowly grows. And it's, I think it's to the point, maybe not as big as I'd like it to be, but it's certainly to the point where it's more uh, known in the industry and more people are knowing about it. And it's, you know, people like you, thanks, Manny, for coming on and talking yeah, about no, it. Yeah, like, I'd love it. Whatever yeah. I can do. How many students have you had during this since you started? Well, I started in 2014. Okay. I started this kind of journey and... I've probably, I've had hundreds, hundreds of students. I mean, I have, I've now developed these online courses where people, people can come and learn, you know, at home or whatever. Um, and there's a couple of hundred online students. And then when I do my, so I have a, I now have a circuit where I go and I teach across the U.S. and to Mexico and Canada and, and Europe. And so I'm like, I'm now, it's every month I'm gone teaching. Wow. And so that's, every time you teach, you're teaching to 30 people or whatever. And, and now it's hundreds or a couple of hundred, a few hundred a year. So of course that then spreads and more people learn about it. More people learn about it. But teaching it though, it's not a one day course or how does it? Well, there's a, you know, variance. There's all kinds of workshops that I offer okay. from like a weekend right. workshop to a week long workshop to 12 weeks uh, workshop to the online courses. The online courses being the most uh, comprehensive courses because you have all of this time you don't have to you know come to a physical location for a period of time and to get a hold of you it's all done through social media social media so that's yeah. how it's done right yeah social media the website um and looking for these schools that i teach at and still have you have you gone back to the schools to ask the deans and program directors yeah or whatever and <laughs> yeah do they understand what it is now or they still don't some of them do some of them are catching it some others still are just, nope, not interested. You're still kind of banging your head against the wall with, with some of those people. And it's, it's probably one of those things, you know, like maybe like how the metric system was introduced. You got to wait for the old to die, for the young to take over. And <laughs> Not in our lifetime, yeah. man. Not in our lifetime. I want to share a little bit of history here because obviously this is a little bit relevant here. Wood beam structures. Uh, do you have any idea what uh, was the largest wood beam structure? The largest is, I think, some kind was probably a, or is a Japanese temple. I've got, um, 
the largest clear span wooden oh, structure span. in the world's uh, in the world stretched uh, 1,072. Talk about imperial metric <laughs> feet tall and 296 feet wide. Built in 1942 to care for the U.S. Navy blimps, huh. uh, the Tillamook. Tillamook uh, home was one of more than 15 such hangars across the nation and, and used during World War II. Oh, wow. Cool. So that's pretty big at that time, right? Yeah. And then uh, the world structure now, I guess, Wisconsin has a 25-story high, 284 mm. feet. Uh, the Ascent MKE building located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is officially the tallest mass timber building right. in the world, moving ahead of Norway's mm. 18-story tower in uh, Mosa, Mosho. Uh, but then Norway came back and they ended up building uh, an 85.5, back to the metric, meters tall structure. So then mm. it reclaimed it. Now, um, what is currently the largest wood frame building in Canada? Largest wood frame building in Canada. I would assume it's probably a building in Vancouver. You see? Yep. It's, yeah, it's in British Columbia. Um, uh, the Brock Commons Tower. Okay. CLT probably or something. Uh, like it's at the University of British campus, British Columbia campus, the world's tallest wood building at 18 stories. Yeah, right. I think it, w it held the record for a little bit. Probably so. for a little while, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I'm always fascinated by the wood structures there. Yeah. So uh, that's just going off a little bit of a tangent. So I'm glad that, I mean, it's taken you a little bit of time to get some traction with this, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been over a decade. <laughs> well, it's close, I mean. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Sure feels longer than a decade, though. Yeah, because it's a, you know you're constantly fighting uphill. It's these uphill battles. Well, oh, you the still time. have a day job too, right? Yeah, I then, still have a day job, and man, then you're yeah. still doing this on the side, mm -hmm. just because of the love and passion for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, are you not at the day job as a site superintendent, and all of a sudden thinking in your back of the head, what else can I do for course? Always, always, right? Always, man, always. Because you're still learning yourself too. You're probably oh, yeah. coming across things that you haven't. You don't. You haven't come across oh, yeah. everything yet. No, of course not. I never will. Yeah. If they were building these things centuries ago, there's probably so much that you still don't know that was built or used. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I don't, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, where do you see it from now? Like, how do we get more and more kids interested in this? Or are you just people in the industry at all interested in this and being more advocates for like yourself? <laughs> That's a good question, Manny. That's like something that I've been hassling, you know, or been struggling with the entire time is how can I make this more, I think just simply awareness is probably the biggest one is to know that this stuff exists, that this is a possibility uh, and, and look at what you, how far you can take this and what you can do with it. It should almost be like a prerequisite. If you're in a trade school that you should do a mandatory course on this. Oh man, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Like for it sure. should be part, you can't graduate unless you do yeah. this. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's just a matter of time I, that, it's going to be part of this certain programs. It's good. They're going to integrate it in these programs inevitably because it's so empowering to the, to the, to this, to the kids. I mean, if you get a 14 year old who can outperform a 30 year old, who's got, you know, whatever, 15 years of experience, you know, something like this uh, in two different countries, there's something to it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, then there's the, I'm going to just clip it all together. The North American Eagle. <laughs> Sure, of course. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't oh, yeah. think the ego is much in Europe as it is here. They it's, still have it for sure. Man. They we're still all, have we're it? all humans. Yeah. Yeah, we're all humans. Okay, all right. Is it yeah. the same in ja Japan? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, it's everywhere, man. It's got to be in you, Germany. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. say no more. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, but it's nice that you have that awakening moment, right? Where you, you kind of like, okay, sure, you had it. And I'm sure a lot of other tradespeople are going to have it. What, what yeah. am I going to pick up from this kid? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. You have to be open. I think you, you, you certainly have to be open-minded and just be willing to know that you you don't know 
And once you're okay with that, then okay, you you know, learning can begin. But that's the best part of ignorance, man. That's actually how you <laughs> learn more. Yeah. Oh, totally. For sure. For sure. So how does, okay, how would you speak to someone who is, I guess, either intimidated or just not really aware of this? How do you start that conversation? What's the first thing you tell them? <laughs> uh, good question. Because um, a lot of people will listen to this show, and I'm sure a lot of people listen to Fred's show as well. And like me, they still try to figure out how to say the word. Right. But yep. eventually we get past that. But then we try to wrap our head around that whole paper side of things. And, right. And then go from there. But I don't I, I, I can see a huge amount of tradespeople actually embracing this. It's just a matter of how do we present it to them so that yeah. they can embrace it. Right. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. I that's don't know. A challenge, right? yeah, it's so a, that's the constant challenge. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, social media is a big one. The Internet is showing that these things are possible. This stuff exists. And here's what you can do with it. Um, you were totally right earlier on where you were saying that your only adaptation is your, your imagination. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I've had that idea about that umbrella for since the first day of construction. Oh, yeah. Maybe I even had the idea back in high school in drafting class where I was like yeah. trying to think. When I built, I was the only one that built a model in drafting class. I was mm -hmm. the only one that finished, right? Okay. And talk about Angular. I actually built a house that was designed for a cul-de-sac. I wanted mm. to design a house that was in the shape of a pie. Oh, cool. My yeah. instructor was dismissing it going, why do you want to do that? You're going to have certain rooms that are going to be so small. And, sure. and and then let's fast forward decades now and they're building condo structures yeah. that are yeah. building with these wedges, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So but like I was yeah. building a residential house with a pie-shaped roof line and we had to mm -hmm. figure out how to do root peak roofs. Perfect. I had no idea how to do it, but yeah, I, was, it. <laughs> I was drawing it. But this yeah. is it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, And the thing is, if my instructor knew of it, they would have yeah. kind of guided sparked. you exactly yeah yeah exactly you don't know yeah. where i could have gone uh -huh. as a result yeah. of that instead of that getting cut saying okay well we we can't solve that it's you know you're crazy to think that well here's this other method or here's this not set of knowledge that we you, know, you this is a great idea and let's go check it out there and was compromises because i oh, actually sure. ended up cutting the back of the house and not into a point anymore oh okay because he's like you can't do that you can't have a point in the, your backyard and i was like why you'll have two sides now to your backyard Oh, nice. Not just yeah. one side. Okay. And then he would look at me. He didn't really have anything to say about yeah. that. But he goes, yeah, but we can't build that. I was like, yeah, you can. Yes, you can. Of course like, you can. What do you mean? You can build anything. Yeah. If you think about it, what, yeah. what is it? Like it was recently uh, from the pyramids to the next biggest structure was the Eiffel Tower. That time period from the period, nothing was built bigger than that Eiffel Tower. I mean, taller? Taller. Sorry, taller. So it took that. But anything can be built. If you look at it. Well, there's the cathedrals in Germany. You know, they had cathedrals. Were they taller than the Eiffel Tower at that time? Well, the Eiffel Tower was built in like the 1800s. Yeah. So it was yeah. just that span between the thousands of years from pyramids to, to modern day technology building that, right? I don't know. You'd have to look up what's this, how high are the pyramids? And then how high are some of those cathedrals? I don't know. Maybe it's like, something. I mean, they've got some, they got some really tall cathedrals. What I mean, my yeah, point is that we yeah. can, like as humans, we can build. Yes, exactly. It's yeah. the only thing yeah. is that we have an imagination. We haven't just pushed our imagination to build it. Right. This, this way. And here's this knowledge that enables you to do that. Yeah. And that's the, you know, it's like any good mentor, any good guide, if, they, if they're well-versed in a, a variety of subjects, they can better guide the, the, the kids. They can better guide their students. And the kids will actually <laughs> feed into that oh, and exactly. also educate the instructor. Exactly. And then it's kind of this perfect... Full circle yeah. at that point. Mm -hmm. Now you've got a collective of people brainstorming, trying to figure exactly. out... Exactly. Yeah. Instead of just the the teacher with the old school mentality, the teachers I know everything and don't question no, it. That's yeah, all garbage, right? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, but that's I'm, construction. 
a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of old school people that that's their way of doing. I've been doing it for thirty years, and it works. Crap. And yeah. Yeah, don't don't tell me anything else. Yeah, uh, but whatever. You know, they'll things move on. Things so continue. if you want to get a quiet kid who wants to get into this, but they're very shy and they want to, okay, what, what is the, what's the first tool that they should have in their arsenal? A pencil, pencil, a pencil and paper or just a drafting. Yeah. Not even a drafting board. Just a like garage a, floor, concrete. Garage floor, yeah. Sheet of MDF. That's the, so the, like the online courses, that's all you need is a, Four by four. Pencil does great on MDF. Yeah, it's great. It's the best. <laughs> yeah. HB, right? Yeah, right. Carpenter's exactly. pencil. It's the yeah. best. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So pencil and a little straight edge and a tri- drafting triangle. That's the, that's all you need. So with all those those three, maybe four basic rudimentary tools, you can build anything you can. I once saw imagine. a landscaper with a uh, oversized uh, framing square, like a triangle. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it was like a three like foot a folding one. Folding yeah. one, right? And yeah. it was it was amazing. I actually saw it, and I was in Ireland, and I ended up buying one. Oh, and, yeah. and bringing it back, and that was quite the fiasco because even when it's folded, it's not carry it's, on. It's, yeah, it's not, still like six feet long. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right, yeah. and raises all kinds of bells and whistles during security. Perfect. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like I brought that, and I I pull that out all the time because mm-hmm. I want to. I, I it's actually like you said, it's. Easier to visualize something when it's on a bigger scale. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. So you can mm-hmm. actually start to see where things start to go from there, right? Yeah. So exactly. I'll put that thing down and start to create from that point. Right. Yeah. That's that's the best thing, in my opinion. That's one of the best ways of doing it. So just mm-hmm. start with a pencil and, and basically just start with your imagination. Start drawing things out. out. I mean, yeah, if I was to walk someone step by step again, you would draw things. You would draw as much information as you know of your design. So, you know, whether it be it's this side, this shape on plan view or this height on elevation view, draw that out. And by drawing these things out and all these different views, you gain more information that enables you to continue down the road. And then eventually you get all of your information to then lay out your stone or timber or whatever. And then you can lay that out, cut it and assemble it. So I want to talk a little bit about joinery. Sure. And, Where's all the original, like the origin of that? Like where did, like, I'm, I mean, yeah, Japanese and everything like that, you start seeing, well, I've read things where you've seen people dismantle Japanese structures mm-hmm. piece by piece and then reassemble it again. And they fit right back to the way they were first done. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's like, they're not using modern day technology of fasteners and glues and all kinds of stuff. Well, they still do. They do? Really? Yeah, I mean, this is a kind of a romantic view that we have of, of joinery and especially Japanese joinery. Yes, they do have very elaborate joinery. Like I'm not taking that away. They they're 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 complex. Yes. And but they still use glues and screws and <laughs> like <laughs> modern day things, you know. Uh, you know, in fact, I went I went to Japan for a couple of weeks with two of my students. We did this exhibition for a museum in Japan. Uh, of, of what city? What, what's it? What well, we it, the the museum is in Kobe. You okay. know where you get that famous beef, Kobe yeah. beef. Yeah, yeah. there. Uh, but we we flew and stayed in Osaka and then checked out Kyoto and all these other places. But the interestingly, as we're visiting these temples and all these things, uh, yes, they use joinery. Uh, but for example, there was a, there was a moment where we're walking into this kind of grand entrance way with a big gate and it's all this wooden timber. It's massive, these massive, massive structures. It's very impressive. And often the posts of these structures rot out because that's the element that's right on the ground or sits yeah. close to the ground. So over the centuries or millennia, they, it'd be rot and they got to replace them. So they replace them with these very elaborate scarf joints. And this is what we often see as Japanese joinery being so complex 
Uh, so the, yeah, there are complex joints, but you know, I remember one time looking at this this joint and I was like, oh man, this is this is fascinating. Let's do it. And so we're like, you know, I get down on my knees and there's just three of us looking at this thing and we're like, holy crap, that's really cool. And then sure enough, like I'm looking close and there's a Robertson screw. <laughs> there's a Robertson screw toe nailed into this thing that's all rusty. And I'm like, there's no way, man, because it's just blow. It's 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 like I can't, can't compute. It's not. It's I didn't not, see that. Yeah, it's not. It's not what I th- what I want to think Japanese joinery or something like this. It's not fitting this this narrative or not fitting this fantasy of mine. So sure, you know, as so I'm looking around and I continue looking around the post, and there's on all four corners these oh. toenail screws going into it. Yeah, into this like you know 13th century structure yeah. they, uh, they don't uh, you know they don't have the same like taboo that we have when it comes to wooden joinery okay. you know we often like to think that uh you know the puritan mentality or the puritist mentality is oh i i built this thing by myself with my own hands with no you know just joinery or something like this yes that you know people you know very eccentric people have done that but you know realistically that's not something that uh if you want to make a living doing is 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 gonna, you know, I say that, but there's always gonna be one person who's gonna give me flack for it, as of always. Yeah, but no, generally don't. speaking, most people use modern day technology. And, uh, you know, this is, you don't, you don't think the Romans used metal in construction? Of course, of course they did. Of course. Yeah, they have, you know, you, we used metal in construction. They used whatever was out exactly. there. That's all. It's, it's crazy to think, oh, I'm not gonna use this because. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a purist. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's no, kind of, structure needs to stay. <laughs> right. What's, yeah, exactly. The structure needs to stay up. I mean, the Romans used metal in, even in timber structures. And this is, when, you know, coming to timber framing, there's this whole like mentality of if you put any metal into this thing, it's this whole other category of no longer timber framing, but now post and beam. And uh, yeah, this is this is a, this is uniquely an American perspective. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the rest of the world, it's just it's just carpentry. All of that is carpentry. If you use metal or you use just joinery, it's all on under carpentry. And as a carpenter, you got to know about it and should so be. So why it. is there segregation here? Like that's just a North American way. Uh, I mean, I, I can speculate and I can give you my educated guess on that. But I think uh, it's you know I'm speaking from coming from the timber framing industry or world is you know after World War II the timber framing world kind of died out because yeah. of you know the industrial revolution not not the industrial revolution but the ability to mass produce conventional lumber and and then you know soldiers coming back they had all these these gi homes that were being constructed so you get you know suburbia was being constructed yep. right like yep. so you all of this kind of this this sort of like assembly line technology was being like massively employed and so the so they didn't need to be building or didn't want to be building with timber framing anymore. They had conventional homes, two by four, stick framing, like all that stuff, chic goods. And so it died out, you know, and it wasn't until maybe the 60s when this kind of back to the earth movement, back to the grass movements came around, they uh, wanted to know, well, how can I build a more, let's say, sustainable or uh, back to the earth structure? And they often looked at barns. Timber framing people will, or carpenters or just people just looked at barns because in America, the ba- barns were where, again, generally speaking, is where the timber framer can really show off their skills because yeah. it's all exposed. And so they would probably, you know, examine these barns and, and look and say, oh, okay, like, you see how these two pieces go together. They got a mortise and tannin, they got these pegs, and I'm going to copy this. And I'm going to kind of do that. And I'm going to apply, and I'm also going to apply with what I know and a lot of what carpentry a lot of carpenters knew were, were more joinery related stuff yeah. like cabinet making. And so a lot of cabinet makers started becoming these, these timber framers. 
and then they started just applying what they knew, which is which is totally normal. Smaller scale is still joinery. Well, the, the 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 timber framing started to become like large furniture, whereas it never ever was that until fairly recently. And, and again, like it's kind of uniquely in America that we have this this mentality of um, you know, timber framing home is this large piece of furniture. Yeah. Well, the other countries, the rest of the world is. Carpentry. It, it's carpentry. It's timber framing. It's 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 the structural wooden structural skeleton of the building that's meant to hold up the the, the walls and the roof, but it's not this aesthetically like piece of furniture like this table or this chair is. You yeah, know? yeah. It's, I mean, it's it in some yes, and again in other applications it is, but but generally it wasn't. So go go back to Japan in about ten years, and you'll probably see a true lock bolt. And yeah, there, no more <laughs> yeah, Robinson for sure. Screw, right? Oh yeah, for sure. But I also I guess I want to talk about engineering because there's structurally sound timber framing as well too so anybody sure. who's building you still got to have some sort of engineering understanding of i guess strength yeah right? yeah for sure mm-hmm. yeah but it, you know depending on where you're building and who you're building for and the size of it you you know it's always a good idea to get a, a licensed engineer to look at it you know and if they're competent in that area then they can approve it or they'll stamp it off or whatever yeah because there's a whole other i guess engineering table that's associated with certain specific timber uh beams and things like that structures i remember talking to the timber uh Caledon timber framers mm-hmm. right and then they were talking about that how this the, the strength of a douglas fir beam from out west or and what you're allowed to do how big you can go mm-hmm. out span, span and, tables and, and all that yeah. stuff right yeah. so yeah. that's all associated with that so it's the same mm-hmm. thing as much as you're drawing it on paper and you're starting it you still have to have a mindset of the engineering yes. oh, for sure it, right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so and yeah. same with barn i guess but with barns I'm not saying that it's easier. It's just barns were designed to go into a center or inter- intersect, right? So then I guess the strength of pushing on one side was pushing to the other side, and that's how you kind of connect the two together, right? I don't really fully understand what you mean. Like, well, when you had, I guess, you're, you're building your roof structure on a barn. Yeah, like the triangle. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're, your engineering, I guess, forces are on to each other, so they're holding each other together. Well, it depends on how it's designed. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're roof you know if it's a triangle and you apply pressure it wants to spread out yeah so, so you, you, do, you you have a collar you, you have a collar tie or a tie beam yeah yeah so yeah. then that you're basically i guess you're balancing one side to the other i'm not trying to s- oversimplify it yeah you're just tying in yeah. this triangle you're making triangles yeah, but when you start yeah. getting into other structures that have whatever rounded roofs or mm-hmm. peaks roofs or arches peaks, and stuff. arches yeah. and all kinds of stuff like that i mean yeah. it's still fascinating to find out where the history of coffered and all kinds of mm. things like that so it's mm-hmm. like that's when it starts to become very very challenging uh, yeah, it can be, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's where it's like, as a kid, you're coming in or a person that's coming into this industry, yeah, sure, you, okay, you're starting, let's say with this one, you're starting with one quarter or whatever, mm-hmm. but now you've got to build the rest of that mm-hmm. and yes. then get it together. Yeah, there, exactly. Right? Yeah, just baby steps, you know. What's that, the, the expression of, uh, you know how, you know, do you know how to eat an elephant? Do you know how to eat an elephant? Oh, yeah, just one. One bite at a time. <laughs> yeah, you just take it one bite at a time. You just do one thing, at, you know, one thing at a time and it enables you by doing all these little baby steps, it gets you to the finished product of yeah. what seems to be maybe an overwhelming or a large project or something like that. You know? I'm still pissed off that you had such a hard time trying to get the educational friggin' system here to embrace or even understand this. Well, they're not, it's not even there yet. <laughs> it's still not there. It's not. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Yeah. After nearly 10 years, it's still not even there. Yeah. It's missed opportunities. That's why oh, well, I totally, started the yeah. show. I was like, Japan, Germany, and France, and Canada can be a part of this. Oh, and for even sure. the U.S. could be a part oh, of totally. it. Oh, totally. Mexico yeah. could be a part for of this. For sure. And oh, yeah. I, I would oh, love yeah. to see it be a mm-hmm. part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you ever heard of the world skills competitions? Yeah. Skills competition? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we have it here in Canada and the U.S., but in 
you would have the world skills competition. So if you, let's say you win nationals in Canada, if you're under a certain age, I think under 25, then you can go and compete in the, at the world event. Wow. And we just don't ever have competitors to go to go because often they're older. Uh, but also when we have sent competitors, they just, they're completely lost. But in so, all fairness, Pat, I mean, is age really an issue here? Uh, no, no, of course not. It's not. But in the world skills event, like the Olympics, but for wh- them, it's... Why can't we have an older person? What's not? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> why not? Yeah. Why can't somebody that's maybe at the peak of their construction career mm-hmm. who has a new passion for this, mm-hmm. doesn't matter if they're 20 years older than, than the limit, yeah, exactly. I, go and mm-hmm. represent. Yeah, no, that's I would, another. Orga- yeah, and yeah, me, me and organizations and rules, man. It's <laughs> yeah. just, they don't they don't get it together, right? Yeah. So it's just, yeah, no. I, and I, I I would love to see more of this in the educational system. Me too, right? for sure. And that's, I mean, it's coming. It's coming. Inevitably, it's coming. And um, as as a young kid coming up, you'll see it. Yeah, yeah. And if, you, if it's not, it's. I'm not saying that because it's me or anything, but you'll see it through somewhere. Some someone somewhere. Someone's going to show you this. Some of this stuff. Because it's getting out there. And for, so, for example, you know, I have a couple of students that are instructors. You know, they're teachers and that's what they do. And they teach carpentry full time. And so they're integrating this stuff into their programs. Wow. But as any, I think, um, let's say government funded program, it has to go be approved, right? If you want to be government funded. By people that don't even know construction yeah, exactly. to begin with, yeah. right? Yeah. So because they're industry the industry often dictates what or funds and and pushes the the educational part of it, right? Because you know, if the industry is demanding for so you know certain skill sets, well then the schooling system better produce students with that skill set. So then when they get out they're employable, right? They're employed. Yeah. So I I, I see what you're saying. I yeah. understand what so you're saying. So if it, if in some ways the industry is not demanding for it, the education system will never kind of teach it. But beyond that outside of that there are there are instructors that are taking courses they're ta- they're actively doing them and they are integrating these into their program um on their own let's talk money like career-wise sure, obviously yeah. this is a passion and everything like that but still if someone's getting into this is it lucrative i mean well i mean it, what do you mean how like i mean is it i mean everyone always okay I always argue the point there's the big three in construction, which is HVAC, mechanical world, plumber, and electrician. They're the money-making career options in construction, right? Okay. So they're also recession-proof and everything like that. So it, it, everyone gets into their trade because of, I guess, passion and interest, and this is what they love to do, but there's also still, it's a living. I'm making money mm-hmm. from it. Mm-hmm. So as much as this is passion and I love it and I want to do it, but I mean, can you actually make a career out of it Financially speaking. Well, you might not make a career out of it, out of this specifically, but you'll make a career out of in the trade using this knowledge. Using the technology. Yeah, yeah using, using this the, knowledge. The, yeah. the knowledge. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we, for example, we, you know, with the company that I work with, we, if you actually, you could pull it up on the Instagram. Sure. Um, we did this very elaborate project where I used this. If, so if you want to scroll down, I think it's closer to the kind of the beginning of, um, when I started on the Instagram stuff. Um, it's basically an entrance way to the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. And, well, the old U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an entrance way that looks like kind of a contemporary uh, wigwam, like a, 
like a uh, a Native American, uh, you know, structure like yeah. longhouse kind of thing. Yeah, and this structure employed these glue, you know, glue these in-house glue laminated timbers. These these kind of like rib looking things that look like a boat kind of. Yeah. Um, and th- th- the way this project came about was an architect came up to us, you know, they, they had these preliminary drawings or, or let's say conceptual drawings that they proposed to the client. And in, the, in this case, it's, you know, the government. And they said, well, we want to build this, this structure for this, you know, this building, this, the old U.S. embassy, which is, has been converted or I think is converting into a Native American museum for okay. first persons, for the Na- nation's museum. Okay. And they just had, they had literally two drawings. They just had a plan view and, a, and an elevation view of this like really weird looking or like really interesting looking thing. And they said, can you, and they asked us, like, can you do this? And uh, my boss came to me and he showed it to me and goes, can you do this? And I said, yeah, yeah, we can totally do this for sure. Um, and I'm getting to your question about it can be lucrative. Yeah. Uh, so we got this wonderful project that we made lots of money on yeah. uh, because of this knowledge, because I had the skill and, you know, I can, I, taught the guys that I work with some of this information that enabled us to build the structure using these drawing techniques. So, um, it's, it's lucrative in that way that you're, you're, you're using it to build a structure. That but you can sense. also do that as if you're a business, everybody's self-employed. So they're, they're entrepreneurs in this industry. Mm-hmm. It's just another tool in your, it's a, exactly. It's just another tool in your tool belt. Yeah. It's not the end all be all. No, it's certainly not that, but, but it's definitely going to open up. It will opportunities for sure. And especially when you get, if you get interesting clients that want interesting designs or something, then you have this ability to do that. And it's, it's above the the standard or typical forms of construct, conventional forms of construction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is cool, but how else are you promoting yourself, Pat? Like to get the word out there. I'm here. So being (laughs) on places like this and then also on social media, social media, but I guess just the word of mouth, word of of mouth. That's all it is. The workshops, those are big ones. And uh, my students, I'm, you know, those, yeah. Yeah, there's the whole Kevin Bacon six degrees because Fred got me to you. you right, exactly. And obviously other students are probably going to hear it as well and exactly. start talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. And I would love for other people, other students, or other kids from other countries, to, like, oh, I just listened to this and I was interested and get them on the show and start talking yeah, about it. Sure. I'd love to interview somebody from France there, from Japan, from Germany, for whatever, sure. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And get more of this conversation. Cause I am totally in love with this stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's maybe one day I might tackle it myself. I try to figure yeah, it out, man. I'll figure out that umbrella one day. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it, it will be a challenge. It's no different than like 15, 16 years ago when I was tackling crown molding for the very first oh, time. Okay. Yeah. That's and how yeah. I freaked out right. how to freaking right. do it until right. I figured it out. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about wood crown molding. Right. Right. So, and, and now that I know how to do it, it's easy. It kind of makes sense to me. Right. 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 Well, I mean, it, that, that, that would be the basic forms or yeah, basic yeah. notions of this mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm not a, like nowhere in the same school as you guys. No, no, man. it's all good. No, yeah, no, that's, yeah. But that's, uh, but that's most like mainly people get interested into it when they start doing crown molding stairs, roof construct, like roof framing. That's when they're like, okay, now it's kind of getting beyond my skills or what I've kind of get taught. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. Are we any, anywhere near finding Get, it or getting not? There. Yeah. Getting there. How far back are we going here? Probably, yeah, it's a little ways. But so I this mean, is you, you got images of you actually just drawing, scaling. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like on the Facebook page or Instagram, there's like this is all just workshops and all, and all of this, inf- this knowledge being used. I mean, there's a, um, hundreds of examples of from models to real life things to, you know, you, you name it, um, of, of people using it. 
So some, a lot of it's my students. Others are from people in Japan, Germany, and France. Uh, really just to show people that this, this, look, this is what you can do. So for example, like if you stop right there, the, the, the second image in from your mouse, you have this like uh, go down one that right image. there. Okay. Right there. Click on that, please. Yeah. So there's, there's a model. This is a reframing model. You can see in the background, you got stairs in the back. Then even further back in that picture, you have uh, windows for joiners. So this model specifically, um, if you go back to the previous image, uh, one maybe to the right, I believe. Right there. That's the drawing for it. So this drawing okay, is what... Go back to the image of it. And that's... Okay, now go back to the uh, drawing. That's the drawing that's that you the drawing. drew first. That's right. Yeah. Not me. Somebody else. Okay, well. Yeah. So now, that's... Now I'm back into intimidation land. <laughs> like, like well, look at that. I get what you're saying about drawings. But this is... This is what's called a stereotomical drawing. Where, so I'm, I'm on top looking down. You, uh, in fact, you're looking at a multitude of things all at once. And that's, that's what makes these sorts of drawings so unique is that you have all at once all of your information. So like the analogy I give often is if you were to have a novel, like a book, yeah. and you were to somehow compress all the pages on a one page, the whole story is on one page, but you have to somehow decipher it. And it's the same thing that you're looking at here. Where on this drawing, you have a plan view, you have elevation views, you have individual component views, all on one drawing. And it's on that drawing that enables you to build that model. What are the, um, the pink lines? The pink, but so there's so many different, like I'd have to look at it, but it's often the pink in, is associated with what's called a footprint or a section cut of a piece Got at it. a certain height. Let me see the picture again, Angelina. Yeah, I'm still not connecting it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I so see on the right side you have a round. Yeah. So turret. no, I, I see that. That's yeah. the only part That's, that I actually got. Yeah. But I see that you've got like a dormer or entry on the middle section. Mm -hmm. Then you've got a curve peak on the left section. Yeah. Yeah. Like, could you make it harder, Pat? Like, like, <laughs> man. Well, man, this is like this is this is when you start getting. This is when it starts getting interesting. And then it goes far beyond this. It's not, it just doesn't end here. But it's fascinating that there's, a, there's actual structures in the world that have. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating, man. I just yeah, so uh, I was going to stop. So the no, picture. No, fine. Yeah, the picture right there, you see this guy's face wearing orange. Yeah, that's Nathan Grunewald. He's one of, the, one of the best students I've had. And in the back there, he had, this is for his professional certificate. It was his advanced professional certificate. Um, and he built this in the back there. You see all these curved elements? Yeah. That's, what you're looking at there is a, is a, is a what we would see as a groin vault. And he built this for his entrance way at his house using all these, like literally these three-dimensionally curved pieces. So you can think of it as like a roller coaster. You know how a roller coaster goes up and as it goes down, it swerves and goes around and it does all these crazy things. That's what he's done with this wood is that he's taken this large piece of wood like a stone carver does and out of that big block, he cuts out these curves very precisely to, to his lines in, in all four, in all ways. And now you have this three-dimensionally curved piece. So I'll speak a little blasphemous because um, I've seen some stone guys mm -hmm. get into five access. CNC. Yeah, that's pretty common. Is it? Is that yeah. cheating now? Is that like... No, I mean, so there it is right there. Sorry, I'll just... If you, the photo on the right side, right, right there, boom. That's his that. ceiling there? That's his ceiling there. Holy cow. 
I love groin ceilings. So man. that's Look called a, that. yeah, so that's a groin vault that we would probably see, but it more, more accurately, we would see this as carpenters and, or timber framers. We'd see what's called a capuchin. And so he used four of these capuchins to make this vault. So technically speaking, for it to be labeled a groin, it means that it comes from four different directions? No, I no? think it's just two. A groin, a groin is when two barrel vaults meet intersect and it creates that intersection. it creates that right? intersection but in and sorry you said that the actual terminology for in timber is considered it's what well in this specific case it's called a capuchin a capuchin, capuchin. like cappuccino capuchin italian origin probably italian but okay. french for sure capucin in french got it that's yeah. beautiful yeah so he spent like 800 hours or something on that thing was that's pine huh uh no? i think it must be pine yeah. i'm looking at the nuts that's why i'm thinking it's yeah. pine but okay that's beautiful yeah. And he built it as, so he built it as one, but he, but there's, okay, how did he build that? In individual components. So each one of those little like curved X braces are, are individual pieces. Yeah, like look at the way the curves intersect yeah. to each other. And if you look closely, you could see this half lap joint between those two. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I'm looking at right yeah. now. How mm -hmm. did he draw that? That's that's the drawing technique. That's stereotomy. That's that by drawing things out, it enables you to solve for all of that stuff. It's, you could solve for everything That's or anything. That's absolutely insane. So this is the stuff where it's like, if you want to say it's lucrative, well, you can do these sorts of things and you can charge for it. That's his entrance too, huh? Yeah, it's his personal entrance, yeah. And look at that. He opened up the soffit. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. <sighs> Copper flashing. There's a few photos there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Exceptional. I mean, it was, and it's, you know, hats off to the, to the guy. And the guy did a really good job. That's so you can see some of the components good. there. No, yeah. I'm not questioning the like the the actual financial component attached to it. I totally think that if you actually offer this and you have it, the clients will come. Oh, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at if you just look at all of those photos, I mean, this is where you know you can see these big chateaus and castles and staircases, and well, that's what you use. That's what you do to build all of this. Let stuff. me see the pergola there, about in the middle, right? Yeah, there. Oh man, that's that's a well. You got to look at when it's completed. It's way better. He's got a twisted uh, spire on the top of that. He's thing. got a tw like a steep like a sp yeah a spire that's twisting. Where's the completed image? Uh, it's probably up a little bit there. Yeah, keep going. So he twisted the actual yeah peak. yeah exactly. It's called a twisted spire, and it's there's a hole. There it is, right there. Boom. Because that wasn't that's challenging right there. enough, huh? There it is. Look at that thing. You know, slate roof, copper flashing. Where was that? That's in France. That's, that's this guy's masterpiece. So in France, you know, with the traditional system, if you want to, you know, what we would think as graduate or finish, you have to present a masterpiece. And this is his masterpiece. Well done. Yeah, 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 for sure. He spent like 1,200 hours or something on this thing. I totally love yeah. the twist there. Yeah. <laughs> like it would be beautiful on its own, but that twist does, it just does something else to it. And slate as well, too, and then completely open on the inside. Mm -hmm. That's crazy, man. I love it. Uh, let me talk a little bit of building code here. Uh, what is the building code for beams in Ontario? Beams shall have even and level bearing and shall not have, shall not, shall have not less than how many inches of bearing on end supports? I actually know this just from regular construction. I would say it's an inch and a half, two inches. It's three and a half inches. Beam, half. beams. But yeah. if it's actual just joists, it's an inch and a half, which yeah. I'm still stunned that it's only an inch and a yeah. half. 
Uh, but uh, beams are three and a half inches. Uh, table A8 to table A11 lap not less than four inches and clamps such as between framing members, furring or blocking and rigid panels. What are the minimum nailing requirements for built up wood beams? I've done this before too. Yeah. So it's half inch diameter bolts. I've actually done it. I was asked to do it every 24 inches, but here on the code, they're saying three foot 11 is max. Mm. So obviously, yeah, ideally they're recommending 23 and five eighths. Uh, how wide can a wood beam span? So we're going back to regular, I guess, tradition, right? So I guess it depends on the size of the beam. Yeah. So a, a, a number, so a wood beam span depends on the a modulus of elasticity size and load yeah. is, it has to carry mm. at four inches by 10 inches. Number one, yellow cedar beam, uh, which has 1400 kilopounds per square inch that supports a uniform linear load of 80 pounds per foot can span 18 or 17 feet. Mm. Uh, now here's just a table just for, um, two by 10 beam span. Uh, so a three ply two by 10, how far do you think the maximum span is for three by two by 10? Yeah. Mm, uh, sorry, two by eight, two by eight, two by eight, three, three ply two by eight, 15 feet, 10 foot, seven inches. Mm, okay. Uh, three, two by tens maximum is 12 foot nine. And then three, two by 12s maximum spine, uh, span is 15 feet. Okay. So yeah, I actually came across that in one situation. I need to figure I out. I think the we maximum. with the code. Uh, this is a question I brought up about uh, to some of the timber framing engineers. That so the minimum that's when it starts to deflect too much. And well, the deflection I don't <clears throat> agree with. Yeah, exactly. I know exactly, and this is and I get it. You know, t wood can really deflect before it fails, right? I mean, you can really load a piece. Almost up to an inch. Exactly. They are allowing. Well, it depends, yeah. And you can, I mean, the, kind of the old school, f like farmers, they would just load their lay their the, the loft, the hay loft, until the beams would start sagging. <laughs> and then that's when they would stop, you know? Uh, so they would, they, it really has to deflect before it starts. Then it structurally fails. But from their perspective, it structurally fails when it's too much of a deflection. Yeah. I, I love yeah. walking into clients' homes and walking into their massive master, walking on that floor, and they, I, I, I pray that they have a dresser with handles on it. Okay. Right? So, like, like dangling handles on it. So then as I walk, I hear those handles oh. rattling. <laughs> nice. So I'm like, there's the deflection for your mm -hmm. house, right? Which mm -hmm. is absolutely, which is code. It's minimum code. Mm -hmm. That span is actually totally legitimate. They allow it. But there's also some spring to it. There's a little bit of spring to it, which yeah. I don't agree with. But yeah. yeah. Um, what else do you want to talk about here, man? Like, I mean, I, these projects are fascinating. And I'm not, uh, trust me, I'm not disputing you that you can make this a very viable career option, man. Well, I mean, it's just you're integrating this into your, into your career, into your li livelihood. So, I don't know, like, let's, let's look at that photo of that gazebo right there of, of, that, of, of the pool. So, on the left side there, right there, boom. Wow. This is, so, this is a Carolina Timberworks. Ah, I don't, man, I shouldn't say anything because I don't know for sure. But, oh, okay. Um, uh, they, this is a project that they've, they've designed and built and it's like, well, this is what you can do. That's slate. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I basically, what I'm looking at, I mean, even if it's Caroline, but the thing is that's going to last a long, long time. Well, as long as there's a good roof on it. <laughs> which yeah. is slate. Yeah. Yeah. As long as there's a And leak, the yeah. peak on that, mm -hmm. that'll always shed weather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you're looking at there is, you know, for people who are just listening is, in the center, you have an, uh, an elliptical structure on plan view, but also the ridge is elliptical. So what's happening there is that your roof pitch remains the same 
as you go around this ellipse. And that gives you that curved ridge. And then on either side, kind of flanking either side of this ellipse, are these two turrets, conical in shape, that are kind of coming on either side. So it gives you these curved valleys. So if you, if you, I know you want to talk about skill, if you want to stand out in terms of skill set and you can come and say to your client, look, this is what I can do. There's value there. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And it's not, and again, it's not just, it's not just the framing or the roof framing of aspect of it. Although that's what we've seen. It, it's further than that. There's more to it than that. But these techniques are also being used in furniture making as well. Exactly. Too. Oh yeah, Legs for sure. Yeah, like yeah. That, Actually, right? so. just recently, there's a student uh, who's doing his, I believe, his PhD thesis, and he's doing his dissertation, and he contacted me to talk to talk about how this this the stereotomy in furniture design, and this is coming back kind of full circle to biting my head against the kind of in America is for years I've been trying to contact uh, publishers to get you know, writing a book or writing articles and stuff like this about this subject material. And I contacted one publisher that they publish furniture making stuff, you know, design and telling them, look, like there's a sudden knowledge stereotomy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, can we, let's work together to get a book out. And they basically said, no, we're not interested because our readers are mainly furniture makers. And uh, I'm just like, man. But the man. principles are there. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, then now you have this, the student who's doing his doctorate thesis or master thesis, and it's about stereotomy and furniture design. And you're just kind of like, yeah, you just. So are there not any books right now out there? Like not well. There's a little bit in like old English. So uh, let's say back in the 1800s, there's you know guys like let's say Peter Nicholson, um, G Jim James Newell, uh, uh, who else? They've written books. Yeah, they've written books, but coming out of England in the UK, uh, turn of the century, you know, 1800s, 1900s, yeah. that talk about it, and they have some aspects of it. Um, but it, it, none of them get as far deep as, let's say, the French go. For whatever reason, the French have d d kind of took this thing and, and went to the, ex the extreme with it and went all the way to the end and nothing no other culture has, has done it other than the french for some reason so is there anything in quebec there's a yeah for historically there's a little bit of things in quebec <laughs> for sure uh but again i mean in, in the american context you know we have to understand the history of of how this country was you know founded or whatever how people were coming over so when you know immigrants were coming over from europe again generally speaking they weren't the most let's say intelligent well-to-do people a lot of them, in fact, most of them were poor farmhands, you know, uneducated poor farmhands that couldn't read, couldn't write. And in some ways, instead of like, you know, instead of dying in, you know, at home, well, go, go to America, go die in, in America. And in the meantime, try to make something of yourself. Mm. And so our kind of mentality of in construction, certainly then, and in, in some ways it still continues today, is we want to build as fast as we possibly can for production, right? And historically, we needed to build homes quickly, especially a barn, because that was winter's coming. We got to, yeah. you know, we got to get the food in. We got to store some stuff. So we need houses like yesterday. And this continues today in the form of this productivity. We, ought, we, we, we in my opinion, I think we overvalue productivity. Yes, it, being productive is certainly important in the industry. You, yes, you want to do things quickly and efficiently, you know, because you, you know, you want to make your money for sure. But I think when you want to take a step back and look at society as a whole, 
it's not very holistic to say that or to value just production. Uh, that's like in a very an industrial mindset is, well, what about the people themselves? You know, what about the people, the consumers or the, or the people living in the society? We, you know, it's important that they're healthy as well. Yeah. And so, you know, this, this knowledge taps into this more holistic approach of technology as opposed to this, what, what some people consider prescriptive technologies. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really good book called uh, The Real World of Technologies uh, by uh, Dr. Ursula Franklin. And she used to, she's passed away, unfortunately, but she taught out of the University of Toronto, uh, I think in anthropology or something like that. And she talks uh, about the real world of the applications of the real world of technology and how uh, in our system, we have this, what she considers prescriptive technology, where uh, it, think of the, the, the classic assembly line. You know, Ford Model T, you know, Ford came out with this system of, yeah. you know, manufacturing yeah. the, 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 the vehicle where you have, uh, uh, let's say, an unskilled person doing one task. One task for every one. Yeah. And then this thing goes down the line and everyone just applies their, their one thing. And then out come the assembly. At the end of the assembly line, it comes this really elaborate, very complex system, a vehicle, right? Uh that's prescriptive technology. And what ends up happening with prescriptive technology is what she found with her research and all that stuff is that it ends up empowering management. And, and so managers and, and uh, upper management have the uh, power through processes and procedures for industrializing and making things more prod productive. And that's how they can then control this system. Whereas there's this other form of technology that she considers holistic technology. And the, let's say, classic example I can give is uh, a craftsman or a craftsperson, um, uh, the artisan, where this one person has all of the skills required f to build something from A to Z. Yeah. You know, so if, as a furniture maker, let's say, you have the ability to go to the, to the woods, cut a tree down, you know, you examine your wood, you know your wood, you cut it down, you mill it, you do all this stuff. And at the end of the day, you have this very refined piece of furniture. That is the holistic approach because you have this one person who's skilled in every aspect and they have the entire control of that process. And so holistic technologies ultimately empower individuals, mm -hmm. whereas prescriptive technologies ultimately in, end up empowering management. Yeah. And so these, you have these two very different contrasting systems that, you know, they're both, there's, there's good applications to the both of them. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but it's not that we should look at one as being far superior than the other. We, we should have the option for both. We should totally. And we should, it, we should also encourage people and through, you know, uh, to, to, you know, through schooling and, and uh, through people and clients demanding this sort of thing of, of holistic technologies of you have an artisan who makes from A to Z. I do this whole process. I'm not disagreeing with you, man. No, yeah. I'm <laughs> listening to it, Pat. And I'm like thinking, okay, so what's it going to take? Cause I assume that you're traveling all over the place and you're doing these classes or you're doing online classes as well. Mm -hmm. You got to kind of set up every time you travel and then, do the course and teach and all this other stuff, but what's it going to take for you to actually just create a home base and just go here? I do. This, that's what you have. I have right? a home base as well. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you have the shop as well. Yep. Right. But I mean, mm -hmm. to make this shop grow and grow and grow and get hundreds and thousands <laughs> of kids in there. Yeah. Like, that, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have that as a goal. That's not something I want. I don't want uh, to build something where I'm now the next 
industrialist you know no, no. productivity of pumping out these kids yeah uh it's i don't know how i mean if i knew all the answers to these things i would probably wouldn't be said be probably a millionaire by now but um <laughs> i think in some ways it's just keep doing it and keep you know go traveling and get this knowledge out there that's all you want to do is try to get more and more people interested in knowing that this is out there first of all yeah and second yeah. that you can actually use it yes and then and third you could probably make a career from it for sure and and just how practical in uh uh in empowering this stuff is to people yeah because you're not ultimately what you're doing is you're not you're not subscribing to a, a technology you're not buying autocad and if i want to design something i have to use autocad that's great and it's wonderful and there's no i'm not dissing it like or like a cnc machine like those are all wonderful tools they're great tools but i think we have to be mindful or at least conscious of well then we become limited to that tool yeah and you, I think, as humans, we don't want to limit ourselves. We have this like innate desire to to do things that are come from from the inside. I don't know. Getting a little maybe philosophical there, but where we're not we're not confined by it. Yeah. This this is this this knowledge is again going back to the beginning of the conversation. This knowledge is ultimately the only thing that's limiting is your own imagination. The tool itself, you can use a technology that's great to manufacture or build what you want, but you still have this understanding or of the design or of, of this object, this three-dimensional object. And that's, that's, the, that's the ultimate goal. I mean, um, is how do we practice that, that mindset? Is, is that, that mind skill? I'm just, species of wood, what are you guys using mostly? In timber do, framing, yeah, uh, pretty fir? much. Well, there's lots of fir, pine, fir, pine. oak, uh, spruce, oak, yeah, white oak, red oak. I mean, cherry. There's all kinds of species that you can use. Yeah, yeah. History speaking, what was the go-to? Well, when it depends where you are geographically. So Japan, Japan, and I Germany think, and France. Well, so in Japan, I think it's a lot of this type of cedar. Okay. Uh, or there's another name for it. I forget. Um, yeah, and then in uh, Germany, in France, mainland Europe. Uh, a lot of pine, a lot of spruce, no, excuse me, spruce, uh, a lot of oak, um, beech. Uh, uh, in England, lots of, well, white oak now yeah. because they get it imported from France. But I, yeah. Um, and then here in America, uh, historically, we would just use whatever that was around us. You know, when if we were building a home, we would just would use whatever the forest had. Yeah. Uh, but in the kind of, let's say, more in the industrial end of timber framing, yeah, I think pine and, and uh, fir. Yeah, spruce pine for yeah SPF kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm fascinated by this man. So, so if anybody wants to get a hold of you, you just do it through Facebook. Yes, yeah, so social IG, media, social stuff, media, yeah. school yeah. of stereonomy, and then. Uh, mm. uh, but you can also try the website as well too. But mostly the, through social media, right? A mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, little bit of green book talk as we get close to the end, but not quite. Uh, what safety procedures should you follow when using woodworking machines? I guess timber frames, you guys are still using machines. Oh, yeah, well, a little right? tools, so yeah. Everyone knows. Always wear safety goggles, uh, face shield, uh, dust masks, hearing protection. That's a big one now. You kids that are younger, 
you're gonna see your ears, man. If you oh, don't, yeah. if you don't pay attention when you're younger, you're gonna see your ears, right? So, working, mm-hmm. operating, word, working equipment suffer the following common injuries: lacerations, amputations, seven fingers, <laughs> blindness. We all know that. It's all the good stuff. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what precautions should be taken to make a safe environment when working with woods? Uh, wood shop safety best practices for working with your hands. Gear up. Stay alert. Always remember to disconnect, declutter, avoid using dull tools, handle tools properly, keep distractions. Dust. Watch the dust. And dust. Yeah, Yeah, dust is a big one now. Listen, I'm not even a fan, but recently I just did some work and I was forced to use MDF trim. Oh, yeah. And it just reminded me a thousand times why I can't stand MDF. Mm -hmm. And I was coughing and breathing and... Mm -hmm. MDF, I just can't stand it. I hate it. Yeah. I, I, I actually breathe a lot better. Not that I'm, I should be, but poplar. Yeah, well, pine and, and yeah. st- it's a lot easier. I mean, ultimately, any dust isn't good for you. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's and not. there's certainly some. But I had such a new hatred for MDF. Yeah, absolute yeah. new hatred for yeah. it, man. So, Pat, what else you want to share before we get close to wrapping it up? Because I'm fascinated. I mean, we could look I mean, at all these different. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's there's a lot we can talk about. I mean. Uh, so one of the things Listen, I'll, I'm not ready to shut it down. Okay, you, cool. So you know, we got plenty of time here, man. So yeah. yeah. One of the things I'll share then is, uh, you know, the question that I often get asked about this stereotomy stuff is, well, why don't I just use a computer? We have the technology. Why not just use a computer? And yeah, certainly use a computer. It's, it's good. And we, that, that is a tool that we should certainly teach people. That's because that's part of the industry and that's, that's what everyone uses. And that's important to know. However, when you're first learning something, um, you do want to be using your hands. And there's a lot of neurological reasons why we, you would want to use your hands when you're first learning something. One of the main ones is there's a study done uh, uh, by this guy, these two professors, uh, Pam Mueller and Dan Oppenheimer, uh, coming from, I think, Harvard and Princeton, or Princeton and the University of California or something like that. And anyways, they did a study about the note-taking by hand versus using a laptop. And so this is going to come back to what I'm saying here. But what they discovered is, you know, they, they did this research and they, they f- were looking at how well did the students uh, retain the information? How well did they synthesize it? How well could they, uh, you know, perform on a test? And what they discovered is the obvious is that uh, taking notes with a laptop, the, the advantage of that is that you can type as quick as the professor was speaking. So you have a tremendous amount of notes that you can refer back to. Your notes were almost a copy of what the professor was saying, ver, you know, verbatim. And uh, whereas the note taking, you couldn't write, you, most people can't write as fast as we can talk. And so your brain is forced to uh, take this information re- well, and synthesize it or somehow ca- kind of understand and then make point form notes. And you're, it's far more work mentally and also just physically of writing this, using this pencil. But neurologically, what's, end up ha- what's, what's happening is that far more parts of the brain are engaged when you're writing um, than you are with typing. When you're typing, you're just most, a lot of the brain activity is silent because you're just, copying, copy, you know, paste. Uh, when note-taking, you have not only just the listening and trying to synthesize this information and then make point form notes, but your, your hand, your tactile hand motions is engaging other parts of the area of the brain yeah. that is further ingraining what the professor is talking about. So when it came time for the test, most students, or students who took the, hand, the, the notes by hand, generally outperformed students who took notes on the laptop. 
And so when it comes to this, when people ask me that question of why not just use a computer is because when you're drawing something by hand, far more parts of the brain are engaged. You're retaining this information. You're having a true understanding of what it is that you're doing. And it, it's kind of like our brains are primitive. You know, we're, we're like, we're, we're species that are really, really old, that technology is like outsmarted us, you know, in a lot of ways. And we can't, evolutionary speaking, we can't keep up, yeah. right? So our brains are meant to be living in the 2000 BC, right? With that technology. <laughs> yeah. And that's, our brain, that's how our brains adapt and evolved in, in our environment. So if you want to have a real understanding of something, uh, you have to generally use just do, do, use your hands, do it by hand. Um, and you'll see that it's, it's certainly in some ways a lot slower because learning takes time and practice and effort. But in the, at the end of the day, you have a far better understanding of the material. So when it comes to this sort of stuff, it's drawing it by hand. And a lot of professors, I mean, they're seeing it now too with, with students of taking things by hand, you know, note taking by hand or, 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 or typing. Um, but I think, you know, in, like in architectural schools, they instantly just go to the computer and start drawing, or, you know, drafting things up using AutoCAD. But there's a, still some good universities that if you're wanting to learn classic architecture or something, the beginning courses are, how do you create an, you know, ionic capital? And you're yeah. going to draw this by hand. Yeah. And you can use all the geometry that's required to do this to get the proper proportions and the proper heights of the frieze and all these things. And so now that student has a really good understanding of what it means or what it takes to design something well-proportioned. Did you go down the architect path along with the schools or was there any interest from there? Uh, in France, a little bit. So there's, we learned a lot of, uh, but timber framing specific related uh, in learning the different designs and different architectural elements of, of uh, you know, half-timbered homes in France and in Germany. Okay. So there's some courses on that, yeah. Um, but it's not something that I was, you know, I'm getting more into it now, but when I was first going through it, I was more that, you know, let me cut something. I want to, you know, I want to cut the rafters or let me do the actual physical work. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't so much that. It was actually speaking to architects that wanted to oh. implement this into projects. Oh, for sure. Oh, sorry. Because yeah. they'd be another sounding board, right? Oh, out 100%. There. Yeah. But yeah. were they like yeah. the school system where like, uh, we really don't. In some, yeah, some yes and others no. Uh, but I've, I've had, I had multiple architects students come through and they're working professionals. They come and take a workshop because they're curious and they want to learn a little bit more of the stereotomy stuff and how can I, like, what does it really mean and how can I imply this into my design? Yeah. And yeah, they, I mean, they're, they're, it's, a, it's awesome to have them because they bring all this, this massive sea of, of information that I don't know anything about, you know, in architecture. Um, but they, they go back, they learn this thing and they go back and they try to implement this for craftspeople. So come for a full circle is that now this industry is demanding it yeah. because you have people designing it because they're proposing it to clients, clients like it. Now we need the skill to build it. Um, and so then now here we are. Okay. Build it. Uh, well, a lot of contractors, I can't because it's not, I can't do it with my framing square. It's beyond my skills, beyond our, our wheelhouse. So whatever I can't. So then it doesn't get, nothing happens. So nowadays, right now, if you do have a client or an opportunity, they'll have a harder time trying to find somebody to actually do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, they can, yeah, but... You'll find somebody, but you'll have to find, mm -hmm. you'll have to search that person, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. to find that person. Yeah, right now, down, yeah. Right? That's the thing about it. Yeah, but give it, you know, give it a decade. You Hopefully. Know, it, well, I mean, yeah, maybe 
maybe I'm just being super optimistic about it, but I hope so. I hope you're totally right. I mean, I hope that in a decade's time, there's there's tenfold amount of people that are in actually practicing this in the industry yeah. and actually mm-hmm. being offering this as a, as a skill set mm-hmm. for their their wheelhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally would love well, to I mean, that. I've been going around the, the you know the world teaching uh, employees to companies. You know, so a company will hire me to come in and teach their their people this stuff, and and then now they have skilled, you know, skilled people that can do this. Yeah. So, you know, as that continues, more and more people are going to be able to do it. All the best to you, man. I'll I'll share what I can and and keep me updated with all kinds of stuff. And I'll keep on sharing more and more stuff out there. I'd love to get more and more, uh, even if your students or anybody else that's interested in getting on the show and and sharing their story as well, too. Uh, by all means, love to get them on the show, sure. right? Yeah, so we can sweet. talk more about it, right? Mm-hmm. So again, uh, reach out to uh, Pat at uh, on Facebook and IG, School of Stereotomy, and also, sorry, how do you pronounce it? The, <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to add. The Stereotomist? The Stereotomist. Yeah, on Instagram. And then oh. on the website there, you can reach him as well, historicalcarpentry.com. And I guess the side gig is, for, yeah, we wanted the Professional School of Practical Stereotomy. That's right. Ready for the 12 questions? Let's do it. What's your favorite construction word, Pat? Stereotomy, man. <laughs> what do you think? I actually love the word now that you shared the whole dissection of it. What is your least favorite construction word? Hmm. Least favorite? Uh, probably, you know, a lot of swear words because it's a lot, it just indicates a lack of vocabulary for me. <laughs> <laughs> what turns you on in construction? Um... The ability that we make something out of nothing in some ways, you know, we we have a set of plans and out of those plans, we, we realize physical environments. Um, and that's, that's, that's very empowering, I find. It is, yeah. it is. It, uh, what turns you off in construction? Um, hmm. Nothing? Well, no, I'm thinking there's a lot, I mean, there's oh. a lot of stuff, you know. <laughs> I like, gotta, yeah. One of those, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're far and few. Yeah. Um, I guess people that, you know, I don't know, man. That turns me off. Construction. Um, the stress, maybe. Yeah, there's a lot of stress. There could, be, there could be a lot of stress. And, you know, scheduling and so many people can be involved. And other people's egos. You know, self-inflicted stress. Yeah, man, totally. I know, I, for sure, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always three ways to do it, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, what's your favorite curse word? Well, you don't curse. Do you curse? Oh, hell yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> so what's <laughs> yeah. your favorite curse word? I mean, obviously the, you know, fuck. The go-to. Yeah, obviously. The so versatile. Yeah, you can use it in any context. Yes. Uh, what's your favorite vehicle? Anything in the world? Favorite vehicle. Man, I don't really have one. I drive a Toyota Yaris. <laughs> so there it is. <laughs> what's your least favorite vehicle? Uh, least favorite vehicle. Um, man, I don't know. That's a good one. I don't know, man. Um, what's yours? My least favorite? Yeah. What did I choose? Corolla. A Corolla? Oh, yeah. A Corolla. They last a long time, though. They're uh, all over the world. Yeah. Every single country. Yeah. The Taliban use it. Do they really? Well, they use Toyotas, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's, they use the pickup trucks, don't yeah. they? Yeah, they do, yeah. I remember watching, what was it, Grand Tour or something like that? And okay. they, were, they were doing a... Uh, a militant version of a, a go-to pickup truck. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was kind of funny. Yeah. But <laughs> Okay, Corolla. <laughs> Corolla. Yeah. You don't have one, no? Uh, pff, I don't know, man. Maybe something like some shitty thing that doesn't last long, you know? Hyundai's yeah. been mentioned quite a few times. Okay. 
Hey, back then, you're too young. Right? Hey, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah you know. Yeah. Well, no, the Hyundai ponies of the day. Oh, okay. Back in yeah. the day, right? Okay. Uh, no, if you don't have a no big thing, man, what construction sound or noise do you love? The sound of a pencil on paper, drawing away, nice and quiet, calm. Yep. Or on MDF. Or on MDF. What construction sound or noise do you hate? Oh, man, the, the machines. Yeah, when you got to wear hearing protection all day long uh, and the vibration so of it. It's loud nowadays, yeah. man. Oh, it's so loud, yeah. Um, chippers. Yeah. Chippers, man, that's a, that'll get to you. You'll go Piercing. crazy. Generators, you know, uh, electric generators. Like, you know, when, the, when all those vibrations are on all day, you know, day after day, week after week, you just you feel it. You know, it's in your, it's in your chest. And when it turns off, it's just like, oh. I love how the guy. marketing guys always talk about how the DBs are not that loud on these units. And I'm like... Uh, they're damaging loud. That's yeah. what they're loud. Yeah. And if it's not even the DBs, it's still, they still have low DBs, but low frequency that's damaging. Low frequency is just as high frequencies that can be damaging to the ears too. So kids, yeah. kids, wear your hearing protection. I oh, don't yeah. care, man. Get them, yeah. get them, yeah. buy a good set. Yeah. Get them. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt one day? Well, you're doing two right now, but I guess. Yeah, teaching and sight and super. Um, you know, maybe something more physical, like jujitsu or something. What profession would you not like to do? <sighs> I don't know, man. Uh, you know, you know, I don't know. Some, yeah, I would say like let's in, in terms of construction, laborer. I don't want to be a laborer. Laborer. Yeah, I mean, you know, like chipping. Demolition work, uh, dig in, dig in. in. You know, a lots of you know, you're you're killing your killing your body over time. You know. Yeah. Last question: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at those pearly gates? Oh my gosh! Um, you're a good person. That's all you need to hear. Yeah, you're a good person. You did your best, Pat. Thank you very much for being on the show, man. Always well, welcome back if you're ever in the hood again or cool. whatever. We can touch base in a few months and see where you're at sure. and, and shit like that. And honestly, whatever, let, reach out to me anytime. And I'll do shout outs, man. I'll, t I'll keep on pushing it and seeing it. And I, I'd love to see more and more kids uh, and even hey, you old guys. Oh, man, anybody. Love yeah. to see you guys. Yeah, uh, you, for sure. Maybe I'll try it one day. Do I'll it up. try to figure it out and I'll be DMing you over and over going... <laughs> I can't fucking figure this out, Pat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please send somebody, yeah. man. Please. I can't figure. I've already wasted all my lumber. No, this is absolutely. I'm in awe of this stuff. This cool. is uh, absolutely amazing where it came from, where it is, and where the potential is. Yeah. Well, Manny, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Oh, no and I sincerely all, do. And um, thank you for all the work that you do as well. Thanks, I mean, man. Yeah. Every Reach out to him, man. Everyone who's listening, reach out. You got questions and you want to be a part. You want to be a student. Yep. By all means, right? You're always yep. open to more students, right? Always. Yeah. Okay, I think that's it, man. Cool. We're all done. Thanks, that's Angelina. Awesome. We're yeah, out of here. Thank you.